welcome. We're glad that you're here to join us at Waterstone. Throughout Advent, we observe Christ's first coming, His birth, and also look forward to His second coming. Each of our four weeks leading up to Christmas, we will reflect on what Jesus brings, love, peace, joy, and hope, and study these using the New Testament letters to the early church. This will be a fitting conclusion to our year-long journey through the Bible, which we've called Love This Book. We are looking forward to celebrating Advent and would enjoy even more if you were able to attend one of our services in person. We invite you to go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Well, only five sleeps till Christmas. When we'll get new stuff. As a child, we couldn't wait to get the new stuff, right? Because then we would be completely happy. Tony Campolo, professor of sociology, he talks about the first time he got a train set as a child. I was overcome with joy. A sense of ecstasy surged through me. I loved everything. I loved everybody. The world became radiant and wonderful. A sense of aliveness permeated my consciousness. I stayed in my state of heightened awareness and sensitivity for almost three hours. Then something happened to the trains. They didn't break. Broken trains can be fixed. Something far worse than that happened to them. They became old. Yep. Everything new becomes old. Churches become old. I sit in the membership class with you. You're all excited about our people and our programs and our worship and our preaching. And I'm thinking, will you stay when it gets old? People get old. Growing up, one of my heroes was my great aunt, Kitty Irwin. She was one of the first women in Pennsylvania to get her pilot's license. She was love and legacy in our family. But as long as I knew Aunt Kitty, she was old. Well, here I am, a great uncle nine times over. God gets old. Do you know when God gets old? When you think you have him figured out. Things get old when there's no mystery. That's why you can give a toddler who knows hardly anything about everything a cardboard box for Christmas and they're completely happy. You know, as we get older, we begin to figure this out, right? That everything new becomes old. So what do we do? We change our strategies. We begin to fear the new and guard the old. Give me that old time religion. Don't try anything new. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And now you see how difficult the challenge is because people leave the church because it gets old and people leave the church because it gets new. And the deal is the church can't do anything about it anyway because we're born always wanting new, always longing for home. We're born with home sickness. That's why people leave a church, because it doesn't feel like home anymore. But nothing 
can fill that homesickness. Not even a church. C.S. Lewis describes this sickness, this homesickness. All of your life there has been an unobtainable ecstasy that has hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. When you are starting in on a pleasurable experience, you think, ah, finally, this is it. And yet you never have it. All the things that have ever deeply possessed your soul have been but hints of it. Tantalizing glimpses, promises never quite fulfilled. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of the tune we have not heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. It is a music we are born remembering. So we get a new train and it gets old and we get a new turtle and it gets old and we get uh, a a, a new ski pass and I-70 gets old and we get a new church and it gets old and we get a new friend and he gets old and we get and marry a bride and I'm going to change the subject. (laughs) These four Sundays of Advent, we're looking into the manger and we're seeing a king as a baby, the promise of the ages. And the four promises we've said are these words of Advent, love and peace and joy. And today on this fourth Sunday of Advent, hope. I want to come straight at it. I believe hope is the conviction that everything old becomes new. And I'd like to talk about it from this amazing passage as we near the end this year of this Bible. Love this book. We've preached our entire way through. And today we come to Revelation 21 and 22, and we see hope. Everything old becomes new. And we're going to look at our future. And we're going to look at the good things in our future. And there's some very good things. And then we're going to look at the best thing of our future. The best thing. So, let's go to Revelation chapter 21. Let's learn and experience hope. Everything old becomes new. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. That word new is an interesting word, and it's much broader in its use than in our English language. Typically, when we think of new, we think of something we didn't have before, or a new condition, or a new season that we haven't experienced before. But the idea of new here is not new in origin, but new in quality. In other words, it could easily be translated renew or remade or repurposed. In other words, the new heaven and the new earth, our future is something that's going to be remade, something that we, we know and has fam- we have familiarity with, something that uh, we've experienced, that there'll be a connection and an alignment from this world to the new world. The new world is this world remade and refined by fire, as Peter describes it. Now, we've had that demonstrated for us in the bedrock event of Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus. He was raised in a new physical body. But we know that that body was still his old body, 
made new. He still had the scars and the wounds. He, he, after the shock, he was recognizable by people who knew him well. It was his body made new. And it was made new as in outfitted for heaven. Remember, it was no longer subject to the same physical laws that our bodies currently are subject to. Jesus could appear in locked rooms. He seemed to be able to, uh, he lived in space, but was not bound by space and could move freely. We'll get to experience that someday because what's true of him is true of us. What's promised to him is promised to us because he is the first fruits. But you see, the point is, his body made new. This world will be made new. So let's jump into that newness. Let's just for a moment experience our future. It talks about in Romans or Revelation chapter 21 some very familiar things. There'll be a river There'll be trees, there'll be uh, streets, uh, there'll be gates and walls, and there'll be a city. So there'll be much that we know and are familiar with. It will just be repurposed and renewed. I like in Revelation 21, 16, how it's, be, it's somewhat described for us. First of all, it says that this new world will be 12,000 stadia wide, deep, and long. It's a cube. 12,000 stadia is 1,400 miles. Now, we could have coffee and talk about the book of Revelation, and it would be a very interesting conversation. So I'm convinced that most of the numbers in Revelation are not literal. They are figurative. And what this number is about, this 12,000 stadia, is that was perceived in the ancient world to be the, the acreage, if you will, of the known world. So when John writes that this new city and this space in which we'll live, where Jesus is now preparing a place for us, it's going to be 12,000 stadia, by which he means huge. It's going to be huge, this new world that we will inhabit. And uh, it's going to be a space, a huge space that we will live in. But it's not just space, it's spectacular space. Revelation 21 goes on to describe the walls being made of precious stones. And then it makes this astounding um, description that in the new Jerusalem, there will be no sun, S-U-N, but rather the entire world, the new world, will be lit by God's radiant glory. He will be the light, and we will only see in this new world as we see God, and as we, you know, observe His beauty. It's His light and His presence bouncing off these walls made of precious stones. What's the best movie you've ever seen when you said, wow, that's amazing cinematography? I tell you, it's nothing compared to the cinematography we are going to experience in the new world. A beautiful light, a beautiful space. In fact, what's interesting, it says the walls are made of these precious stones in Revelation 21, and then it lists the stones, 12 of them. And do you know that these stones were the same stones that were in the book of Exodus in the priest's uh, breastplate that he wore as he ministered to the people of God? Same 12 stones. What's that mean? That means heaven has been calling us from the earliest days of our history. It's been promised to us. Heaven has been all around us, inviting us, like the reflection of the trees on the water. Heaven 
has been present to us all along. So it's going to be a space, it's going to be a spectacularly beautiful space lit by the glory of God. And a couple more things about this, this physical existence, it's going to have no loss. Look at verses 3 and 4, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God, and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. We see here that there's a, this physical existence in the new earth will have no loss. God's presence means the absence of suffering and sickness. There'll be no sin, no evil, no death, no disaster, no disease. I often like when thinking about this and talking about it with brothers and sisters to think, thought experiment, how many jobs that we currently hold will be eliminated in the new earth? because of this. Sorry, Chris, I'm not sure there's going to be policemen in heaven. <laughs> not, no, yeah, Chris isn't too disappointed. I'm not sure there's going to be a need for doctors. I'm not sure there's going to be a need for counselors. I'm not sure there's going to need, be a need for insurance adjusters. I don't know, what else? I mean, you think of what, I, I, don't worry though, I hear the unemployment benefits are pretty good. And you will gladly enter into that existence. What will it be like to live a physical existence with no loss? Not only that, there'll be no lack. In Revelation 22:2, we read as the description continues of the new earth, down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, each side, bearing 12 crops of fruit, 12 each month, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. We will live in a physical existence where there will be no lack. No loss, no lack. 800 million people tonight will go to bed hungry. Not just tummy growling, but clinically hungry. 800 million. One out of every six human beings lives below the extreme poverty level, less than a dollar a day. In America, the top 20 managers of hedge funds, their yearly income is 22,000 times more than the average American salary. Now, you and I could sit down and have a great discussion on economic systems and theories and capitalism and socialism and everything else, but I would want to end the discussion simply by saying this. Everything old becomes new, and that will be no more. No loss, no lack. That's the physical existence. What about the loving community that lives in this physical existence. It's described in verse 2 as a city 
that comes out. And I know for many of us, that may not be thrilling. <laughs> Live in a city for the rest of eternity? Uh, you, you, you know, cities don't have the best reputation in, in the Scriptures. The first city was named Enoch, and it was built by Cain, and it was destroyed in the flood. The second great city was named Babel, and that was an arrogant city that tried to play stairway to heaven, and uh, it was drowned in a flood of language. The third great city in the Scriptures is Jerusalem. Jerusalem became known as the city that rejected Jesus. And you get to this new city and you begin to think, wow, in the city is a collection of people, you know, brother haters, God defiers, Christ rejectors. Because this new city, the gates of the wall are named after the 12 tribes of Israel. Men like Judah, who when he was young was so jealous of his younger brother, he sold him to Egyptian slavery. And when he was old, he forced his daughter-in-law into fornication. And the, the, the foundation sections of the walls, they're written with the names of the 12 apostles, men like Peter, who on Jesus' worst night betrayed him and walked away and said he never even knew him. Or John, who at one point was so upset with a Samaritan village that he asked Jesus to send fire down on it. He's a racist. My friends, do you understand that nothing in your life, no unfaithfulness is so evil, nothing in your life is so obscure that it cannot be redeemed and in fact even fashioned into the walls of the new Jerusalem? Waterstone, believe the gospel. The gospel says that Jesus has moved heaven and earth for you and then laid down his life for you so that you can be home with him. That's the gospel. That's good news. And when that good news penetrates the human heart, it's transformed. And that's why the best part of the city is not just going to be, you know, God's own light and the cinematography and these precious stones and streets of gold and gates of pearl. You know, the best part of living in the new world is going to be we're living with people with transformed heart. In fact, in Revelation 21, we are called his people. In Revelation 22, we're called my children, God speaking directly, which means we will have the same fatherly traits as our heavenly father, primarily love. Here's the best part of the new world. We will be living with people who are self-forgetful. We will be living with people whose whole new nature is about loving the other. Can you imagine what that existence will be like, living with people who are self-forgetful and want to just know you? That's just, I mean, here's what we know from the movie Beaches, one of my favorite scenes in cinematography. Bette Midler says, she's playing this very conceited and selfish character. She's talking to her friend and she says, well, enough about me. Let's talk about you. Tell me, what do you think of me? That's our world. And if we're honest, at moments, that's us. But imagine what it will be like to live in a place of love and self-forgetfulness. You know, one of the things about 
church and one of the things about faith and one of the things about our existence now is we're on mission. You see, and what a church on mission means is that that future has invaded the present. And in fact, we are now experiencing eternity. And now our hearts are transformed and transforming. And we are already living and being changed into an existence of other-centered living. That's what's the mission of the church. That's why we exist is to demonstrate the future reality of other-centered living now. And the Christian mission has always been about that, and it's actually what makes us thrive and grow and have unusual influence. No one has described this better in the early church than a University of Washington professor named Rodney Stark who wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And this is very timely because he says, One of the reasons that the early church had explosive growth such that by around 350 A.D. it had deeply penetrated the Roman culture all the way up to the emperor was because of their invincible obstinacy of love. And then Stark describes it. In 165 A.D. and 251 A.D., there were two 10-year plagues. Now, scholars debate whether it was smallpox or measles. But these were horrible plagues. In fact, in both of them, they estimate 25% of the Roman Empire died. Galen, a Roman historian, writes that in the proper city of Rome, 5,000 people a day were dying. And Galen writes that anyone who had means fled the cities. Anyone who, who, who could find a way out, they left, even the doctors. But do you know who stayed? Christians. Why? Because their heart was transformed by love, because they felt a mission to care for the sick, even at the cost of their life or their family. They stayed. Why? What's rational? Why? Because when you know that this life is just the prelude to glory, the gospel gives you guts. And heaven makes us healers. And we stay, and we stay put. So just for a moment, I want to remind us of something in our plague year. When we went to shutdown in the month of March, our first Sunday when we had church online, we covenanted together around these words. And I want to read them to you just to kind of check and see how we're doing, because we in this plague existence are still on mission. Here's what we said. When this pandemic has passed, what will our neighbors remember of us? Will they remember that Christians took decisive action to support the vulnerable, even at personal and organizational cost? Will they remember that their Christian neighbors checked on how they were doing? Will they observe how we brought food and supplies to the most vulnerable within our congregation and community? Will they watch how we still connected with each other by small group or by technology in order to be empowered each week by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the love of the Father poured into our hearts by His Spirit? How are we doing? By the way, I sent this out in a letter this week. I hope you read it. And in many ways... God has been very faithful and present in and through Waterstone. We've had a season of unusual vibrancy in many of the things that we've been able to do. But I want to ask you, 
everything I'm reading, I don't think you would disagree too badly with me on this. We're in, for, we're in this for at least another six months. I think we need to take Christmas break, get some downtime, gain some weight, get, get some good joy, and then we have six more months where we need to be on mission. Gear up and let's go. Can I give you one specific thing if you're wondering, well, what, what do I need to do? Maybe I need to add something for the next six months in terms of mission. We've been trying as an elder board and staff, around 40 people, to call everyone in our database uh, at least every three months. And what we've decided to do over the next six months, January to June, is we want to double that and call each people twice and actually have people own five or six families, and each month you either call them or you send them a note or even maybe, you know, drop something off on their front step because two-thirds of our congregation is still pretty locked down. I'm asking for your help. Forty of us, we can't do this. If you would be willing to own in love five or six Waterstone families where you pray for them each month, call them each month, write them, just you're their pastor, and you shepherd them. Would you just let us know? That's what we want to be about, taking care of our congregation. One of the things we want to be about these next six months. So if you're willing and able to take that on, email me, R at waterstonechurch.org. Better yet, email my administrator, because that will, I will just forward your email to Kenya Sandy. Kenya as in Africa, S at waterstonechurch.org. You can find her on our website as well. Thank you. That's the good things of heaven. Everything old becomes new. A physical existence, housing, God housing a community of love that even now is overflowing. But we haven't got to the best thing yet. Do you know what the best thing in heaven is? God. God. We've already said that the only way we'll be able to see in heaven is by His glory. Everything we do in heaven will be illumined and brightened only because of His presence. We will live in His presence, and that's how we will see. So we'll only have vision in heaven by His glory. And then it's said in verses 3 and 4 that there'll be this moment, right? There'll be this moment when it seems the hands of Jesus will touch our tears. And in a moment, heal us of every loss, every shame, every regret, every pain. In a moment, His hands, our tears, we will be healed and everything redeemed. So can I just say two things about heaven and God being the best thing? Number one, and I loved how Kaylee answered this in her story. Is that enough for you? Is God enough for you? Because in the end, you get God. Which leads to my second statement, and this one more of a punch in the chest. If you don't like God, if you aren't pursuing Him, if you're 
just not very interested in God? Why in the world would you want to go to heaven? Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus came to the manger, was writing to his people. They'd been carried off into exile. And Isaiah is asking, what should I do to encourage my people? And God says, show them this. And it's Isaiah 6, this vision, where we get the sense that every moment in heaven, if there are moments in heaven, the cherubim and seraphim, these groups of angels who seem to be worship angels, they look at God and they see some new facet of his existence and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then they reflect and they ponder and they, they look down and then they look up again and they see some new vision of God and some new feature and facet of his being and character and they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the Apostle John, near the end of the first century of the church, is writing to his congregations in what's now Turkey. And these believers were professing Jesus as Lord and not Caesar, and they were going public with their faith, and they were demonstrating the love of Jesus to their neighbors, and it began to cost them. People were taking their houses. They were being boiled alive in oil. They were being fed to lions as a, as a, at a sporting event. They were, they were crucified on the public roads, and John's thinking, how can I encourage? How can I encourage Jesus' people when these things are happening? And the Spirit of God says, show them this. And I saw a new city, a new Jerusalem dressed as a bride. Come, come. He showed them their future. And did it work? Here we are. Did it work? Well, it seemed the more that they pressured them, the more poise and peace they had. Well, it seemed that the more they killed them, as Tertullian said, the seed of the martyrs became, the blood of the martyrs became the seed of the church. Does it work? It seems that history has shown that when people are infected with the future in the present, that living hope that everything old will become new they can endure misery, even death. That's why we're so grateful for Kaylee and her story. That's why we're grateful, because it shows that no matter how sinful, no matter how small we feel, when we have that hope of the future promised to us now, what can the world do? I mean, to worry about what the world can do with the riches that we have of promise and hope would be like a billionaire fretting the loss of a penny. No, worse, fretting the loss of a scratch on a penny. Can I ask you, do you have that hope? That's what's promised to any and all who follow Jesus. 
Would you like that hope? Let's pray. Would you pray with me? And if you would like that hope, simply in the quietness of this moment, to the things that I pray, just say, yes, Jesus, me too. Me too. Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you for the promise of hope. Everything old will become new, including me. Lord Jesus, good hope stems from good doctrine. And so Jesus, I want to say that I believe that you existed. I believe that you died on the cross so that my sins wouldn't keep me from being in your presence. I believe, Jesus, that you walked out of your own grave and the same kind of new existence you have, I will have. I believe in you, Jesus. I thank you for what you've done for me. And Lord, now, with your love in my heart, I too want to demonstrate your rule and reign on this world of love to my world and my friends, my co-workers. I want to follow you the rest of my life. So Jesus, I guess what I'm saying, I'm yours. I give myself to you. Thank you for bringing me home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.